Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. It's the podcast where we take a look through an author's working day, see how they get stuff done. This week we're chatting to Mandy Rowbotham. Her new novel is The Hidden Storyteller. We talk about the rules of historical fiction, how strictly she sticks to them, also why she needs a deadline, and why a life of many different careers has given her a dedication to the work. I have to get down to it and I have to treat it like a job. Um, and I worked for 20 years as a midwife, you know, shifting. You just get into that work pattern, just have to get up and you have to do it. And then when you do it, you love it. Um, and then when I'm in researching stages, when I'm not writing, so usually about two months before I start writing every book, it's research. I really miss it and I get very itchy. I get very grumpy because I'm not writing. Um, and I, I just know that I'm ready to write when I start little scenes start popping up in my head and I'm I just can't help but write them down there is more with Mandy Robotham in this week's writer's routine yes welcome along to the show my name is Dan Simpson and thank you for being there for following for listening and hopefully sharing uh, in this podcast we try and see how people get stuff done we steal some creative and planning secrets and chat to authors about how they plan their day and their life and their work and their space to give them the best chance of getting the words out. And our episode this week is brought to you by the new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? It's all about a 1983 murder, unsolved, regarded as one of Scotland's most gruesome cases. And I think it's perfect for us. It's crime writing, storytelling and podcasting. And I think that, well, I hope that you love all of those things as much as I do. It's a classic case that has baffled the police for over 40 years and you are right in the centre of things. Across five episodes told through a mixture of documentary and drama, this series goes into the very centre of a live investigation and you can be part of it. With interviews from the senior investigating officer and forensic scientists and psychologists and family members and even friends of the victims too. The killer is still on the run and a few months ago the Scottish police announced the biggest step forward in the case for the past 40 years and you can be right there. It's such a brilliant twist on true crime podcasts, an incredible way of just slightly 
tweaking the wheel and it helps it really stand out so you can try and uncover who is the cheese wire killer you can find the whole series now and listen to every episode wherever you normally get your shows just search for who is the cheese wire killer this week on the show we are chatting to mandy robotham who has been busy Worked for many years as a midwife, became a journalist. She's got a master's in creative writing, is a USA Today and Kindle bestseller too. Currently, Mandy is writing two books for different publishers in different genres as well. And has got a new one out. It's called The Hidden Storyteller. It's a historical fiction set in 1946 about the reporter Georgie Young, who returns to Germany post-war to find it unrecognisable. She joins forces with a local detective, Harry Schroeder, to catch a killer who is targeting women. Now, there's a lot going on in the episode and a lot to discuss. We talk about why her life as a journalist conditioned her, really, to only work when there's a deadline going on. Also about the balance of being an extroverted writer, wanting to get energy to see people, but also sometimes needing to retreat with just you and your words in the office. We discuss how she leaves things and stops mid-scene, how she gets on with research and how she has been caught out by buffalo wings, of all things. There's a lot of good tips and good advice in this, and we start, as we always do, with what Mandy sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, it varies a lot because I'm a cafe worker, so I will either work in my spare room at home, which is a sort of office, but quite often I'll be in a uh, a branch of a well-known cafe <laughs> cafe um, uh, company or uh, any one of a, a whole number of places where I live in Stroud. Uh, we've got a lot of cafes there. Oh, Stroud is actually a place very close to my heart. I went to university up the road, so I do I do love Stroud and I love the area. Every time I go, it seems like quite an idyllic place to write a novel i mean you're not too far from slad where laurie lee kind of grew up and wrote his cotswoldian adventures being in a setting like that deep in the cotswolds how much do you think that affects kind of your uh, ability to, to to write at leisure oh i think so i mean now that i'm a full-time writer because i started off working full-time and then and then becoming a full-time writer uh after giving up work but uh, yeah, it's great because anywhere you go, you can be out into the woods in five minutes. And if you really need a break, you can take the dog for a walk in the woods or you can go up on the hills or the commons. Uh, it's Yeah, it's really good. Uh, the people are friendly too. So if you go into the town, you'll always see somebody you know. So you mentioned not just writing in cafes, also writing in your spare room. Just, just, just run us around that spare room. Come office. How uh, office is 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 very rarely a word, a word that inspires creativity. What have you done around it to help you out with writing? Uh, I've got some nice fairy lights. I've got a nice view out of the window, which goes right across towards uh, Rodborough Common. Um, I have got all my little knickknacks, uh, things that my boys, my sons have bought me to do with writing, uh, lots of little post-it notes that have got typewriters on them. Um, I'm a bit obsessed about typewriters. So I've got lots of knicky-knacky things around me and a huge bookcase full of my research books um, and anything else to hand. And I also do use um, one of those keyboards that's uh, that mimics a typewriter 
and so I can plug it into my laptop and get the nice tickety tack sound of a typewriter. It's 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 unusual, isn't it? it I, you remember a, a few years ago when when the vinyl resurgence happened in in music, and it's still going on today. People like the tactility, and as I chat to more authors, I find that well, typewriters are back in, and for many people, they they never left. What is it about a typewriter that you really enjoy writing on? I don't know. So it's not. I mean, I I think I'd really struggle to to write a novel now on a typewriter, but it's just that feeling of it under your fingers and also the tic-tac. I started off being a journalist many, many years ago, so back in the 1987, and the paper that I joined then was still on typewriters. It was just as, as new technology was coming in to newspapers, but we were still on typewriters. And that sort of flurry of noise on press day when everybody's rushing to get their stories in and ripping it out of the typewriter and then handing one copy over to the sub-editors and then actually spiking your, your own copy and putting it on the spike. I, I just love that. I'm entirely enticed by old-fashioned films where you get newsrooms clattering away. You mentioned working as a, a journalist there and and the, the, the rush, the adrenaline that comes when it's close to deadline. How much have you, you tried to translate that into writing novels as it gets closer and closer to hand in day do do, do, do you feel like the atmosphere coming back to you that surge yeah and I absolutely need a deadline if you ask my agent or my editor I absolutely need a deadline uh I think my agent once said to me well you know don't worry just just get this book in when you can because we didn't have a contract for it and I said no absolutely not you've got to give me a deadline because I can't work without one um, and that's, I think, the journalist coming out with me. You give me 12 o'clock or you give me the 12th of March or the 12th of June, that's it. I can do it. But I um, I can't work in that just writing into the ether, uh, as it were. Well, say the deadline is the 12th of June. Uh, how good are you at planning and staggering your writing across the six months that lead up to that? And how, how much are you waiting for the 10th of June to really get going? No, I'm pretty good. I think I've learned. I think uh, being older, maturity, I certainly did that at university, you know, the old all-nighter before an essay was due in. Uh, I don't relish that feeling anymore. Um, And also, you know, when you've got a family, uh, you're working, you've got a function during the day. So you you have to plan more um, backtracking. So I generally write out my deadline and then I backtrack about 100 days um before that and i know then that i can i can be right that's when i i need to be get my word count up by certain amounts i'm a, i'm a bit um yeah that's the only part of writing where i am very rigid about it let me plonk you back in in your office i mean you mentioned the typewriter uh, what is there around you that reminds you what you're there to do i'm talking plot points maybe a big calendar with word count with what's happening uh, is there any formal structured plan for what you write that you can see around you no no i don't do that um i'm a i'm a uh, an out and out pantser um i do have a book every um and i'm also quite old-fashioned and not very good at, at tech so i do write on a laptop but i'm not very good at all the techie programs and things like that i literally open up a word uh, document and write and that that's it but i do have a large a4 book and it's a, it's like a ritual when i go out and buy the book 
I know then I'm ready to start a new book um, when I go out about my notebook. And in that notebook is taped dates and and my timeline um, and for whatever year I'm writing, there's dates and there's lots and lots of all my note-taking in there. And that's pretty much because I go to so many cafes and I work in so many different places. Um, I need to be mobile. If I were to open up your notepad, would it make much sense to me, a layman, that, that's not in your mind? Um, I think you might be able to decipher it, yes, because because I usually have two two books going at once. I... I have to be clear about what my notes mean to me. So I am, yes, I think there'll be a page full of character names, a page full of names that I can pick out. Again, because I write about Germany or Norway or, you know, I have to, I have a whole list of names that I can use from those eras. Um, I think you might be able to, to, sometimes there's little notes that I write to myself and I have to put me and, and circle it. <laughs> But this is what I'm thinking as opposed to somebody else that I've read. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, cafe preference. Um, you've whittled down your options. You go back to a few regulars. I, 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 I guess what, why do you go to the cafe? What is it about getting out of the house, about doing it there uh, that, that really inspires you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's that routine of get, getting out. So I get up, I walk my dog, Basil. Um, sometimes he comes to the coffee shop with me, um, but he's not very good at sitting down. He just stands there looking a bit gormless. Um, so I have to get out and then uh, once I'm out, I can then go back and work at home. So it's not just in cafes that I work, but I like to go out. And I also, because I, I want my good coffee. So I'm a big fan of the flat white. Um, and I, I like the buzz around me. I just like people around. I can focus down. If it's a little bit noisy, I'll just stick my earplugs in and put on some music um, and block it all out. But I found I can – I also think I've got I've got an hour and a half, maybe two flat whites. That's two, an hour and a half for me. Um, and I can, I can actually get quite a lot of work done and quite a lot of words down in that time. So you being out there, being around the buzz of people—that's that's quite an extroverted kind of thing, right? How how are you? How much does that translate to everything else? Like, uh, I, 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 do you enjoy uh, book events and publishing stuff where you're around a lot of people? Does that do you, do you take the same buzz of energy from that? I do, I do, and um, we're blessed in Stroud with having a lot of writers. There are a lot of writers in Stroud and around, um, and around the villages and Cheltenham. And so we have a really good, um, community where we meet sometimes over coffee, of course, or sometimes drinks. And we talk about the publishing industry. We have a bit of a whinge and a wine. Um, but basically we, we are there for each other. So it's very easy. I'm definitely not a party person. And the publishing events I have to push myself into, um, but I'm getting better at them um, because I realise that actually they are quite important, just getting your face out there. I don't go to a lot, but the ones that I'm invited to, I go to. Um, I sink a half a glass of wine before I go in and hope for the best. So I'm not an early riser. I spent 20 years as a midwife being on call all the time, getting up in the middle of the night. So I'm now relishing that luxury of not having to do that. Um, I'm probably up between about eight and nine. Uh, my dog will 
insist about 8.30 about being fed. So I'll feed him. I'll either go out for a walk with a friend and another dog or I'll just walk with Basil. Um, I try to think about work while I'm out. Uh, so that's a, that's a good lead up. Uh, we'll come back and then I will go out to my coffee shop and set down. I'll, I'll aim for about a thousand words a day. And if I can get that done in the first session, that's great. And I will tend to sort of stop there. I'm not one of these people that goes on and on and on and on thinking, oh, I'm on a real roll. Sometimes I'll actually leave it, leave it halfway through a really good scene so that I know I've got something to pick up the next day. Um, uh, because that gives me a nice bouncing board for the next day rather than sitting there thinking, right, what's going to happen next? So I like that bouncing board the minute I, I set to work. Um, I will come home, um, talk to Basil for a bit. I will then probably start doing something else like editing or writing some PR. Um, and then sometimes, quite often, I've got a second book on the go and I will do that. So I usually call it a very good friend of mine called Lorna Cook, uh, calls it her swerve project. Um, so she, you know, she does the thing that she's contracted to do in the morning and in the afternoon she does her swerve project. And so I have actually written a book that's going to be published very soon um, that started off as a swerve project and actually became a real book in the end. Just something I want to write, something that just comes out of my head. Well, yeah, I know that you are, aren't you writing for kind of two different publishers now? Is that a thing? I am at the moment. Yes, I am at the moment. So I'm writing historical fiction for Avon and then I'm writing um, a different kind of fiction for um, Head of Sue's Aria. So because those are two contracted projects, they they can't really be swerve projects, right? You need to dedicate as much attention and energy and time to both of them. How do you deal with that balance? I don't know. I'm just, I, I am fairly good, uh, I think, of because of the way I work, I literally open up the laptop and go. Um, I might check a few emails first, but I literally get up, get up and go. Because I have no – I do have a synopsis. I've got a beginning, I've got a slight middle, and I've got an end. I know which end I need to get to. But beyond that, there is no uh, real plotting. There's characters that pop up in the middle. And so I think that really helps me because I'm not sticking to a rigid – plan line I feel quite free and then I can close that one down have a bit of a break and then I can open up the other one again um I don't know it's just something I'm able to do I do live both books at the same time but I can I can separate them I was going to ask about living them both at the same time do you have a fate is it like having a favorite child do you secretly have one that you prefer when you are working on two um no, I don't think so. I actually don't think so. It sounds a bit naff to say it, but no, I don't. I, When I'm working on one, I'm totally in that book in the moment. When I'm working on the other one, the same. Uh, I have to be careful about um, my different eras because I'm tending to write at the moment in the 1950s, early 50s, and then and I'm writing in the 60s. So I have to be really careful about um, the eras and how factual and how accurate I'm being. Um, so I'm constantly checking my facts and looking up things as well as I'm doing it. Many people say that they 
they they struggle with the entry process of of getting into the book every day and you help yourself out by having those bouncing points when you've stopped writing halfway through a scene so you know immediately that you can pick up and fly the next day but when you're doing it twice in a day when you finish your morning session and you're getting into your afternoon session perhaps working on another novel uh, how much readjusting does it take to to re-enter that frame of mind especially working on something different um i tend to reread just reread the last maybe the last chapter or the last 500 words that i wrote um and that seems to work i'll fiddle about i like to edit as i go along i don't i'm not a person that does a lot of drafts um there's basically one draft that goes into my editor and of course there's lots of structural edits after that but I because I edit as I go along um that's I think that provides my bouncing board and at the start of every day you're a you're a pantser although you've got a beginning vague middle and you know where you're headed at the start of the day how much do you know about what you kind of need to get done in the next thousand words How, how shored up have you got that day's writing yes I sometimes know that I want to get to an end of an episode or an end of a chapter. My chapters vary in length uh, enormously. Some of them are less than 500 words long, and some of them are two or 3,000 words long. I'm a short chapter person, and I think that just comes of the uh, the genre that I'm writing, is that you have to keep it short and snappy um, in some... And, and sometimes it's because I'm just in writing different voices uh, from the different characters, um so sometimes it's just getting to the end of a chapter and other times it's actually getting to the end of an episode or a a plot arc that needs to be done and then i can think about the next one it's interesting that you say end of an episode i've never heard scenes and bits of novels referred to like that before um i'm a big telly watcher (laughs) i'm not i'm not a script writer but i'm a big telly watcher and i think you can you, you know where the adverts are going to be, put it that way. <laughs> you know that, you know, if you've got an episode of Vera, for instance, you know just when the adverts are going to break um, because they, they come at the end of an arc. And so I sometimes think of it a bit like that. How else does kind of TV structure uh, affect how you are writing and, and planning novels like that, do you think? Well, I think in this day and age, it's such a visual society that I think we we have to. Um, I grew up in the 90, early 1970s with telly as our sort of cultural point. Um, you know, we didn't go to the theatre. We didn't, certainly not in my household. So television was a massive thing. Uh, each day at school was, did you watch this or did you watch that? And of course, we didn't have a lot of channels. Um, I distinctly remember Channel 4 being launched. I'm that old. Um, but so I think, yes, we've got to be aware of how it translates, not by a scriptwriter, but in people's heads as they read. Um, and I'll quite often have a character who I, who I think, oh, they're a bit like that actor. And I'll, that's my visual point through the whole book. Um, of having a certain actor play a character. When the words aren't coming for you, when you are finding it maybe a little bit tough, uh, what what do you do that, that helps out, that greases the wheel to, 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 to stave off any block? 
Um, I will perhaps try and do something like a PR project, which is quite often a quick question and answer or writing a short story for someone. I will, I will certainly try and write every day, even if it's not the thing that I'm doing. And if it's really not working, I think I can afford to leave that alone for the day, work on the other one a little bit more. Um, so they've got a bit of leeway. Um, and I will, I won't, I won't keep at it if it's really not working. I'll just go and do something else or I'll just down tools entirely, go and see a friend, walk the dog again, anything to take you away or knit. I do a lot of knitting. Like how often do you find that happen? I sometimes, so it's really interesting. I speak to some authors who do find it an absolute chore. I speak to other authors that simply cannot turn the tap off. They sit down and they love it so much that they 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 they, they can't stop their fingers writing. I know you mentioned earlier about your your kind of one thousand word limit that that you don't want to write and write and write and write. Uh, where do you fall, kind of in in between those two camps? Oh yes, it does happen. It does happen. It's the middle of the book. And, and I think a lot of writers will say this as well. It's the, the first third, you're introducing the characters, you're, you're sort of going off, you've got things happening. Again, with my genre, there's lots of action needed. It's the middle of the book. It's that, it, that is the one that feels like treacle. And it is very much a love-hate relationship. Um, I love it when it's going well. I absolutely, you know, it's like flying. It feels like flying when it's going well, when it's not. And it is. Sometimes it will take me a good half an hour to even open up the laptop. If I'm not in a cafe, for instance, uh, I'll, I'll fiddle around, I'll procrastinate, I'll do lots of other things. But when you think, right, well, these words have just got to be written. You know, you have to look at it like a job. Um, unless you're a writer that, that is so well established, you know, makes a lot of money, can afford to take years to write a book. I'm not like that. I have to get down to it and I have to treat it like a job. Um, and I worked for 20 years as a midwife, you know, shifting. You just get into that work pattern. You just have to get up and you have to do it. And then when you do it, you love it. Um, and then when I'm in researching stages, when I'm not writing, so usually about two months before I start writing every book, it's research. I really miss it and I get very itchy. I get very grumpy because I'm not writing. Um, and I, I just know that I'm ready to write when I start, little scenes start popping up in my head and I'm, I just can't help but write them down. That's interesting because you are right. It is a job and all jobs come with struggle. And even if it's your dream job, there's parts of your dream job that you don't like. And, and you mentioned earlier on, after so many years doing shift work as a midwife, giving yourself the leisure of of waking up early, uh, waking up late rather, how how long did it take you to kind of deal with the, the, this freedom that becoming a full time writer gives you? I know a lot of people would struggle and they'd think, "Well, I've always woken up, six, up at six o'clock, and I feel like I need to be doing something, so I shall do that." And they might not be good at you know, bracketing their day up like you do. How, how long did it take you to be comfortable with the, the the fact that this job is at your leisure now? Yes, it's an interesting question because, yes, it did take quite a while and there was quite a bit of guilt attached to it as well. Even though it was something I'd worked towards that I so desperately wanted to be a full-time writer. And then when it's presented to you or it's made possible, it's suddenly... 
Um, and people would stop me in the street and saying, how are you during your retirement? And I'd say, well, I'm not retired. I'm still working, you know, or, or they'd see me out and about during the day, um, not seeing that sometimes I write till seven or eight in the evening. Um, yeah. And just giving yourself a day off sometimes. I mean, I tend to write every day. I tend to work every day, but I don't work eight hours a day. Um, I might be thinking about things quite a lot, um, but I don't actually work eight hours a day. It's not possible. I, I, I don't know many writers that could write for that long. Uh, you just can't sustain it. So, yes, you, you're right. It took me probably a good few months to actually be comfortable with saying, this is now my life, this is now my job. But every day I wake up and I thank my lucky stars that this is what I do for a living and this is what I'm able to do because there are readers out there that buy my books and, you know, I'm hugely grateful for it. Now, without getting really into the money side of things, I mean, you, you mentioned when you started writing full-time, it came with a lot of guilt. Did it also come with worry because you've made this big leap you've found out that financially this can work I, I can do this full time but i i would imagine that for the first few months as well you're, you've always kind of got that niggle of well actually actually can it work can i manage everything and make this happen yes yeah i suppose but it's that is exactly like every person working isn't it it's like every parent um my children were were grown up but they weren't financially completely independent so I still had that to think about I don't think I would have left work without knowing that I could manage and you know at the end of the day I just thought if it doesn't work I'll go get a job in a bookshop you know and I'll still be surrounded by books all day long hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life 
the level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now wherever you get your podcasts. And this episode of Writer's Routine is brought to you by that new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? You can find it wherever you get your shows. And you can sponsor the show in the next few weeks. You can support us on our Patreon page. If you have published a book recently and you think it deserves way more plugging than it's gotten so far, I know it's a tremendously tricky market out there. Well, let me talk about it for you. Let me give it the oomph that I know it deserves to make that happen. Just support us on our Patreon page. Doesn't require a lot. A little bit every month. It helps us keep this series going. It helps me keep bringing you chats with the world's best authors as often as we can so you can take a look through their working day so you can steal some secrets yourself and for supporting us by becoming a backer you get merch there is bonus content and as i say there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show i know that times are tight as well so i really appreciate everything that you can send over on our patreon page patreon.com forward slash writers routine to support the show Let's get back into it then with Mandy Robotham talking about her new novel, The Hidden Storyteller. In this half, we chat about the book, about the idea, the research and the planning. You can hear how much she thinks about the style of historical fiction. Normally, it's quite distinctive, isn't it? How does she tap into that? Also, we hear how she finds writing a male voice because there's uh, quite rightly a lot of criticism online about how men go about writing women and how they can get it just dreadfully wrong. Uh, are, are women cautious of writing men? Are they concerned with, with making sure that's spot on, that the voice is right? We'll chat to Mandy about that. And we get back into it with the rules of the genre. How strictly does she stick to them? Historical fiction writers, what we talk a lot about is how close to the truth do you need to be? Um, how much fact do you need in there? Uh, when you're researching, there's a tendency to think, oh, I'll, I'll put that in, I'll put that in, because that's a really interesting fact. Um, and then at the end of the day, you realise this is a story, it's fiction. And what you're doing is you're wrapping the story around a true historical event or an era or a person. And it's actually okay to be quite free with the fiction as long as you don't take liberties with it. Um so I think can think of one thing in my first book. It was about uh, a midwife who is actually a midwife to Adolf Hitler's baby, um, which of course is fictional. Um, but the thing I wanted to have the baby on D-Day. I wanted it to to be born on D-Day. But then I actually found out that Hitler was up at the Berghaus in um, in Germany, you know, in the mountains in Germany, actually on D-Day. And I didn't want him around at the time. So I had to change all of that because someone somewhere, some historian would have picked me up on that. Um, so there's things you can play with and things you that you can't. And I think they're all unspoken, unofficial rules, but they are there. Well, that, that's interesting that you, um, that you, because I, I don't, like Hitler... Having no children that we know of, it, it's interesting that, that, that you you were creating that side of things. That was fiction, yet you were staying very true to his movements at the time. Yes, because 
yes, sort of the playing field, the level playing field of war, you can't, you know, there are certain facts of war when it started, when certain battles happened, you can't play with those. They are absolutely in stone in, in fact. It's the, it's the small things around them that, that you can play with. And that's usually characters and people's lives, love affairs, those sorts of things. So th- that's how I see my characters. They, I have a pivot. I always have either uh, a place or an event uh, that is factually stuck in time. And then I, I pivot my story around that. I kind of wrap it and weave it around that. That's how I see it in my head. Now, I guess, what is it about historical fiction that draws you in? For instance, me, when I have an idea, maybe that I'm thinking that I might try and turn it into a novel one day, a what if, it's all to do with my life right now. I, I guess the question is, does is this naturally coming to you? Is it at all a struggle to have these questions set in the past? Are you writing historical fiction because that's the way that you think and that's where your story ideas take you towards? Um, I'm, I love, I'm a lover of history. I didn't actually study it at school or university, but I am a lover of history. I'm always drawn back to the past. I love talking to elderly people about their experiences of things like war, um, though that's becoming harder and harder as time goes on. But I love talking to people. And I think with World War II, especially it was the tenacity of people. It was the fact that, you know, I mean, obviously, in the last couple of years, we've all been tested with the pandemic. But can you imagine how much so much worse it was with five years of war? And, and you know, work, life went on. And I still find that absolutely astonishing that life just carried on. Babies were born. People were married. People fell in love. Um, you know, they did their shopping. They went to work. I find that uh, quite incredible, um, that sort of thing. The other thing is that I'm not great at technology. And so I don't think I could ever write, um, I'm writing a spy book at the moment, and I can't think I could ever write anything that would be contemporary because I just can't do the tech. <laughs> okay. I can't. <laughs> I can't. So the idea that people were running about leaving messages in, you know, in parks under a bench or running into a phone box, and that that's really my bag. The character sparks from book three, which was called The Berlin Girl, which was a journalist. Hey ho, write what you know. Uh, a journalist uh, in 1938 in Berlin. It's her first posting abroad. Um, and so now I've transported. She goes all the way through the war. She uh, with her husband, who becomes a photographer. So this is now at the end. I think I felt I wanted to bookend the war with Georgie Young, the character. And so I. I brought her out into 1946 and I wanted to know there were questions inside my head okay so what was it like straight after the war did things just go back to normal just did things melt away did they not what was the reaction of people you know why were the occupying forces in Germany still what did they do um so I made Georgie Young because it's easy to make a journalist go back because they can answer questions and they can move about and they've got they've got uh, permission to do that uh, so I took her back to Hamburg this time instead of Berlin. Um, and I went to Hamburg and did a nice little research trip. I met a wonderful man there. He took me around the city and who since became a really good contact in terms of research. He was wonderful, really helped me a lot. Um, 
and then I decided, but but I knew I wanted to write crime. I'm a big crime reader. I love crime. Um, I knew I wanted to introduce a sort of element. The other thing about war, of course, is it makes things happen. Um, you've, you know, explosions go off, uh, places are bombed, people, you know, war is moving all the time. When there's no war, you have to make things happen as an author. And so what I did was I made a scenario where crimes were still happening in this chaotic post-war world. Um, and where there's crime, there has to be a policeman. So up pops uh, Inspector Harry Schroeder from the German Kripo police. So it's an interesting meeting point of things that you want to do, right? So you want to return to the reporter, Georgie Young. You want to bookend the war. You want to dip your foot into crime and, and you need a plot to go with that. So how does the plot kind of come from those various ideas that might be linked together? What questions are you asking yourself to to try and come up with this plot that will drive the story? So I'm thinking about what Georgie sees as she comes. So she's been all the way through the war. She's seen lots of atrocity. She's not been in England. She's been all across Europe during the war. And actually what would shock her and actually what does shock her is the the death rate after the war the way the poverty was still a real problem, getting food to people, the cold of a German winter uh, and people through that. Um, But also I thought, you know, she's got to be investigating something. Now that the war is over, she's got to be reporting on something. And so what could come in the way of her, you know, doing her general reports? Um, And the, the thing for me was being a big crime reader, of course, was, you know, there are there is someone murdering other women across Hamburg in the midst of all this other chaos as well. Chaos is a word that comes up quite a lot in the book. So let's talk research then. You mentioned going to Hamburg, but when you've got this idea for the story, when you've got a plot and you've got your nonfiction books around you, you've got your notepad and you're writing down dates. But what research are you doing, I guess, very broadly? A lot of books. I buy an awful lot of research books. Um, I will often go to the British Library so and look up various newspapers. And this is where my friend in Hamburg, Gordon Drain, really helped me, was that he is uh, a British expat who lives in Germany, but he speaks fluent German. And so he was able to go over some of the German newspapers for me because I don't speak German. Um, and also to look up some of the things that are available on German sites uh, that he could understand. Um, so he was a massive help in that. But there's usually one little pivot, the one what I call my little golden nugget of fact. And I found it in an article, I think it might have been by Victor Galantz, who was a amazing publishing man, but he went out to Germany after the war uh, to report on the on what was happening to German people after the war. And it makes quite hard reading. But um, I read there that suitcases were a valuable commodity for people, that to have a suitcase was quite a thing because you could put all your very minimal amount of valuables in it, but also that you could sit on it, which meant you didn't have to sit on the grimy, grubby floor. And so people with a suitcase, it, it was quite a thing. And so that became my pivot. And it's there in the very opening chapters of of this homeless young girl who's the third character in the book. Um, 
actually coveting this suitcase. Um, and that's how she gets to meet with Georgie and becomes part of the, the sort of character ring in the book. So that's one example, but you're reading a lot. And I'm sure that not everything you read makes its way into the book. But but what does it do? What does, does reading so widely about your subject, how does it help you tell your story? It gives you that basis so that you can open up the laptop every day without having to sit there and refer to books all the time. So if you read enough, you'll read the same fact two or three times in two or three different books and it begins to just form this base layer inside your head so even though on the on the big edits you will always fact check and then your copy editor will help you fact check as well you don't have to keep stopping starting you've got this base layer of knowledge um, and visual images that you've seen that you can then you think yeah this is what i'm describing um also having gone to hamburg it's good to I walk a lot when I go to a city, I map it out in my head and I walk a lot and I time my walks so that I know it takes 10 minutes to get from the rat house in the middle of Hamburg out to, you know, the dockside or something like that. So I will do a lot of um, uh, things like that. I do a lot of walking when I go to a city just to give you that base layer of knowledge. And when you are sticking close to some historical fact but also playing around with the fiction in your story what rules do you like how much of a discussion do you have with yourself of how accurate this is whether this is believable that this could have happened how much do you let that get in the way in the I guess the smaller scale of things smaller scale not too much I think I allowed myself a little bit of um of room on that it's things like so if you particularly wanted a snow you know you wanted to make a scene in a snowstorm and you're not absolutely sure that it snowed on that day i don't think that matters too much unless it was a very big news event for instance uh, like the big snows of 1962-63 in england you know you've got to be really accurate about that but for instance in the in the book i've got uh, them running through a snowstorm I didn't look up whether or not it snowed on that particular day, but since it was a German winter, there's a good chance there would have been snow. So you do give yourself that levity. I, I mentioned like the rules of uh, historical fiction earlier on, but w- when I read it, they are written in a style, right? They're, they're written in a, a style that does brilliantly take you back simply by the words on the page, by generating this atmosphere. How, how much do you think about that? Oh, quite a lot. Yeah. You've got to put somebody in there because that's what the readers of historical fiction want. They want to be transported to somewhere. They want to hear the sounds. They want to hear the the clipping of, uh, you know, German army boots on the cobblestones. Um, so it's really about trying to imagine. And of course, that's again where filming comes in. And, you know, I, I also watch a lot of films Um some of them are made at the time and some of them are not. You have to be careful again because sometimes that historical research isn't isn't that accurate. Um, but there's lots of newsreel as well, lots of pate, good old pate newsreels, um, where you can actually look at people's clothing, their hairstyles. Um, and because of the, a good deal of the readership is female, um, then 
I think you've got to be you've got to be really careful about those sorts of things. Um, I have been caught out on a, a few little things that people have written to me about. Like like what? Uh, I think I was writing a novel about the Berlin Wall uh, in 1963, and I the scene was in an army base um, in Berlin. And I think I put that there was buffalo wings available. Somebody from Buffalo emailed me and said buffalo wings weren't actually available till late 1963. So I was about two months out. <laughs> the invention of buffalo wings, uh, you know, point taken. I got it wrong, but how I, it wasn't something that actually occurred to me. I thought buffalo wings had been around for a long time. And how much does that bother you? Uh, no, if I got something really historically wrong, factually wrong, that would bother me because that's, that's my fault. Um, but no, little things like that. I just say, I just write back and say, thank you very much for pointing that out. You know, it's fiction. Sorry. You know, I got it wrong. Well, yeah, because I, there must be so much that you do have to think about because it's not the big things, is it? It's the, it's the small details that you and I in 2024 would take as absolutely red that might catch you out. So it's stuff like Buffalo Wings. Yeah. Yeah. And a copy editor uh, also uh, pointed out that I had spent a long, long time describing German SS uniforms as raven black and, you know, got got out my, um, all the synonyms for black and, and things like that. And she came back and she said, you know, in films, they're, they're all black SS officers, but actually at this certain point in time, they were all very dark gray. And so I had to change all, I had to get all my synonyms out again for lead and leaden. And <laughs> you know, so you, yeah, um, good old copy editors are brilliant at things like that. They will, they will pick up on the, the nitty gritty. How often when you're writing uh, as a pantser, do you find your characters taking you somewhere where you had not imagined that they would go? You thought you had slightly understood, all right, we're heading down this line. Uh, we're getting towards the ending that I had envisioned. How often do they drag you down some side route that you completely hadn't planned for? Oh, all the time. Yeah, particularly um, the side characters. Think uh, Characters that I think are going to be minor quite often turn out to be fairly major characters. Um, I do generally end up the ending where I've always thought I would end. It's a bit like a snakes and ladders board. Um, you know, I do have a start and an ending. I know I'm going to get to that bottom corner of the snakes and ladders board, but there's things that pop up that do surprise me. And I think, oh, that's quite good. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. I'll go with this character, and and then they end up being quite a um, a good uh, foil for my main character quite often. Uh, and we were speaking about your like the voice that you write historical fiction in I'm, I'm just aware that at the moment halfway through the day you are pivoting to to write for another publisher about a completely different kind of thing uh, how jarring is that switch in in getting the tone right which is probably completely different from the other stuff you're working on um maybe it's maybe just in the ages of, of generally the women that i'm writing um, so the, the, the book to come after the hidden storyteller is going to be Inspector Harry Schroeder again. Um, and this time I'm writing in his voice. So I have written in the male voice before as part of, uh, as sort of half, half and half of a book. But this time this is going to be in entirely in his voice. So it's about what he thinks as a German 
coming to London and pairing up with um, a female police officer. So, yes, that is sometimes going from man to woman is sometimes a bit jarring. I have to, I have to think. But again, I think I'm quite, I'm quite good at just switching very quickly. Uh, always with a cup of tea in between, of course, and something to eat. <laughs> Here's a question that I've never asked before. Um, it, it, over the last well, a few years and beyond, but it's certainly come to my attention over the last few years. Uh, men writing women badly uh, has come to the fore, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and how much do you think of it the other way round? So when you're writing from a male viewpoint, is that trickier for you? How how do you how do you do you, do you have to perhaps give more thought? Yes, I think yes, I do. Um, I've got two grown-up sons, so I sometimes will run things by them or my partner. Um, I think on the first book that I wrote, A Male Voice, I did get a friend, a male friend to read it and said, what do you think? Am I, am I way off base here or not? And he said, he's a bit weak, a little bit, <laughs> a bit namby-pamby. So I had to toughen him up a bit. Um, I had to toughen up that character. That was in the Norwegian book. Um but no, apart from that, I think living with, you know, there's there's me and three boys growing up in our house. So I think I I think I'm OK on it. Somebody else might tell me different. <laughs> and that is it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you to Mandy Robotham for coming on the show. That new novel is The Hidden Storyteller. And it is out right now. We are back next week with a brand new author on the show. In the meantime, you can support us on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Make sure you take a listen to Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? Brand new true crime podcast, which is supporting the show this week. You can drop us a follow on X as well. We are at Writers Pod there. If you enjoy listening to episodes on YouTube, we're on uh, YouTube Music and we've got our channel as well. Just search for Writers Routine and we'll come up. Uh, but hopefully it's that easy. No doubt it won't be. And you can always get in touch on the contact page at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with a brand new author. Until then, bye. <laughs>